a real estate in Paris when I was writing Antifragile, and I was completely ignorant of these things, and I wondered where was the expensive real estate. <laughs> and the expensive real estate turned out to be in neighborhoods that were villagey in looking, you see, and, and, then, and then where you effectively had some kind of uh, life, all right, and you can look at it in terms of dimensionality, namely the fifth, sixth in Paris, and the Marais, for example, and all these areas that were completely spared by modernity, you see. Schultz tells you that we were on a process before modernity of building neighborhoods in a certain way. You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thanks to everybody who reached out to me after the last podcast, the first of this series on Small is Beautiful, a speech given by Nassim Taleb. I really appreciate the feedback. There are times when I think perhaps I'm more incoherent <laughs> than Nassim is. And that's saying something. I appreciate all the encouragement and the positive feedback from the last podcast because I listened to it myself. I found myself yelling at myself while I'm listening to myself, wanting to express a couple of points that, that didn't come through. And I, I'm just going to start with this one before we get back into the speech. You know, the coffee cup metaphor is one that Nassim uses a lot. He says, you, you know, you can drop a coffee cup from a small distance and you won't harm it. Drop it from a large distance and you'll break it. That's an important understanding, but it's not as important as kind of an idea that goes along with it. And that is that as much as you drop the coffee cup, it's never going to get better. A coffee cup will not be improved by dropping it from any distance. So if we drop it from an inch, we may not break it, but we're not going to improve it. We're not going to make it stronger. If we drop it from a foot, maybe we'll break it. If we drop it from 10 feet, we're likely to break the coffee cup. But either way, the upside of the coffee cup is unharmed. That's the best it's ever going to get. It's never going to get any better than unharmed. And the worst it's going to get is smashed all to pieces. When it comes to cities, when it comes to organic complex systems, the upside is not no harm. It's not suffering no damage. It's different than a coffee cup in that way. And so our challenge as people who want to improve cities, want to strengthen this country, want to make our places function better is to not treat cities like coffee cups where any kind of upside or any kind of benefit from stress is lost. And all we do is worry about how things are not going to go down, how things are not going to get worse, but actually come up with systems where as we stress it, it actually can improve that Instead of having the properties of a coffee cup, it actually has those properties of an organic system where it grows, improves, matures over time. To me, that is one of a handful of very key insights from Nassim Taleb. Now, we're going to switch to talking about grandma. Like I said in the last video, he, he tends to go off on all these tangents and, and they're really crazy, but they're really, really valuable as well. This is one of those that really gets to how we measure success. 
and how we understand and experience success. In cities, often we measure them by these really rote abstract metrics. What's our average daily traffic flow? If average daily traffic goes up, hey, things are going well, right? What is our unemployment rate? Uh, If unemployment goes down, things are going really well. The problem is that when we look at things with just these blunt metrics, we lose out on so much of the nuance and subtlety that complex systems have operating under the hood. His story about grandma here is a good one to kind of kick off that conversation. You worry more of a second order effect than a first order effect when you're very fragile. Okay, by definition, what's concave? And here we have an example. If you have a grandmother and you know she spent 48 hours at 70 degrees temperature, you're very happy for her, no? But if someone tells you 70 degrees on average, but one day was zero degrees and the next day it was 140 degrees, you're not going to be very happy for your grandmother, okay? So you realize that the second order effect dominates the first order effect when you're fragile. So let me give you a couple of examples from how that thinking would apply to cities. Let's just start with traffic, ADT, the way we measure traffic flow, average daily traffic. If we look and say, you know, average daily traffic on this street is 20,000 cars a day, you look and say, wow, that's twice as good as a street with 10,000 cars a day. But if the 20,000 cars a day predominantly come in a morning and an evening surge, in other words, there's a rush hour surge and everyone's driving through and everyone's getting, those 20,000 cars don't do a lot for you. The second order effect, the more nuanced impact of people stopping, getting out, actually making purchases is overwhelmed by the first order effect that you're measuring, the average daily traffic flow. We see the same thing nationally with unemployment statistics. And when they're applied locally, they become even more absurd. So unemployment drops. You know, we have unemployment at 7% and now it's at 6.5%. And so great, the economy is improving. But when we look and we see that, you know, no, not really. It's people who are working part-time jobs. It's people who are working jobs for less money. It's people are having to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. Those really rough statistics that we use to judge success become silly and irrelevant, and they fail to capture the complexity and the nuance that's going on within our places. How do we start to deal with this? How do we start to deal with the fact that our large centralized systems and the way that they measure success has very little to do with actual success? at the local level. I have very little to do with our prosperity, our wealth, our security, and most relevant to this conversation, the degree of fragileness that we experience on a daily basis. Nassim talks about the fact that the more orderly we try to make things, the more predictable, the more comfortable, the more secure we try to make things, the worse the actual outcomes are. And that a way to improve outcomes, a way to create a better system, is to actually have a bit more variability. He talks about it here in this clip in terms of medical conditions, but I think it's a good analogy to this broader conversation. For example, lung ventilators, instead of giving someone 100% of the dose, you vary 80%, 120%, you have a convex response, okay? 
you do better and effectively people survive better. So cities where I live get something called local government aid and not all of them get local government aid, but some of them do. It tends to be the ones that are less suburban, less auto oriented and a little bit older. And I don't fully understand the formula, but I know that in my hometown here at Brainerd, local government aid has become a really destructive thing. I say that not because I want the city to lose all its local government aid. In fact, if that happened today, it would be devastating because the city has not built up any way to handle that. Local government aid is 40% of the local budget. The city spends over 20% of its budget on debt service. So you take away the local government aid, you've got debt service, and pretty much that's it. You're very, very limited on what you could do. The problem with local government aid is that it's consistent year to year. And so, in a sense, we just become used to what that amount is. And we plan it in. Our systems have no slack. They have no way to adjust to that. A few years ago, when the state was having financial difficulties, the first thing on the chopping block was local government aid. And really, when we look ahead, I can see that local government aid is not long for this world. I mean, it is primarily a rural benefit. And you have the rural politicians demanding less government while the urban politicians are demanding higher taxes and more government. It's going to be pretty easy to see how this ultimately plays out in a political context. Why are you going to fight for something when the constituency for it essentially is the one who doesn't want it? Regardless, how would we do local government aid differently if we wanted to strengthen our cities? Well, we would vary it from year to year, right? And this is so counterintuitive because what you want is you want stability, right? If you're the city, I want $2 million a year. I want to know I'm going to get $2 million a year, and I want to know it's going to go up with inflation every year so that I can plan and I can project and I can do what? Go out and take on a big project. No, I'll have the cash flow. Go out and take out a huge amount of debt. No, I'll have the cash flow, right? You can see where this leads. We want the stability. What if instead of giving $2 million a year, one year it was $1.2 million? And the next year it was 2.8. And then the next year it was 1.4. And then it was 3.2. And you couldn't really predict with a lot of certainty, but you knew it'd be like somewhere in that range. It would change the way you reacted to those funds. It would change the way that you spent them. And it would allow the excesses to essentially be windfalls that you could do something unplanned with or something that would be based more on opportunity. While the modest amounts that you get would basically be there during more difficult times to help you out. It would change the nature of that subsidy. I do think ultimately local government aid is going to go away. And so we need to be prepared for a world where it does, but you can see how the desire to do good or the desire to provide cities with stability and surety actually at the end of the day makes them weaker. It makes them more fragile. It encourages them to take on debt, take on large projects, not make the difficult choices that are needed to, I'm going to say tighten the belt a little bit, but it's not tighten the belt. It is make the difficult choices about how to optimize your own system. I ran a business for many, many years before I started running this nonprofit. One of the worst things that ever happened to me running this business was getting a line of credit. 
I got a significant line of credit because a bank believed in what I was doing and I believed in what I was doing. And the problem is, is when you believe in what you're doing and you get a big line of credit, you use it. You don't get the signals and the feedback that you otherwise should be getting. Signals that are telling you that, hey, uh, you might believe in what you're doing. You might be convinced that this is the right thing to do, but the market's telling you something different. When you're not making money, when things aren't going well, when you're dealing with uncertainty, taking on large amounts of debt makes you not only very fragile, but gives you very few options to respond when things get difficult. A Nassim Taleb kind of approach would say, our cities would benefit more from a little bit more volatility, a little bit more variability than the kind of nice, stable environment that we've tried to set up for them. All right, now we start to switch in this lecture to the part where he starts to talk specifically about cities and starts to talk specifically about places. He makes that switch by talking about technologies and how they survive over time. And I, I found this to be at first a really counterintuitive notion, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he's right. Let me let you listen to the clip and then I'll give you my take and then we can chat a little bit about how this applies to our places. Look at the graph. You can see a child and the grandfather, all right? Statistically, you can expect the great-grandfather. You can expect the child to outlive the great-grandfather, bearing some kind of, uh, you know, outlier. You agree? All right. But now if there are technologies, a young technology or an old technology, who's likely to outlive the other? The old. It doesn't mean that the world doesn't have a lot of technologies. It means simply that new technologies don't survive. They're more likely to be supplanted by another new technology. I've heard him talk about this in terms of books, and I think books is a good way to grasp this concept. The book series Harry Potter, wildly successful. J.K. Rowling is a billionaire. I think she said she had more money than the Queen or something like that. Very successful book series. I've read them. They're wonderful. They're, they're fantastic books. If you said what book is going to be around longer the J.K. Rowling series or Fifty Shades of Grey, which I've not read, but it is a book that's coming out as a movie now, right? We'd say J.K. Rowling it is a broader audience. We'd apply all these metrics and we'd say, you know, it's going to be around longer, which is going to be around longer, Harry Potter or The Grapes of Wrath. You don't know, you, you know, you're not sure because these are fourth quadrant. And I'll talk about that in a minute. These are fourth quadrant types of things. They're, they're somewhat random. But we are inclined to believe that The Grapes of Wrath will be around longer because it has been around longer. It's already proven that it is a book that is going to last 70 years. It's going to continue to be relevant over multiple generations. It's already proven that. Okay, which one is likely to be around longer, The Grapes of Wrath or the Bible, the New Testament? Well, the New Testament is going to be around a long, long time, right? Even if Christianity goes away as a religion, which I, I don't see happening anytime soon, but let's say that Christianity, you know, fades out in the next century, they're still going to have the Bible around a millennia from now. People are still going to have it, refer to it. And the reason is because the things contained within it have been shown and I'm not talking about divine nature. I'm just talking about the literature itself has been shown 
to have the force of power to last multiple generations already. It's going to continue to be around a long time. You can say the same thing about the Iliad and the Odyssey. You can see the same thing about Lucretius. Whatever it is you want to go back and pluck from ancient times, the writings, they've shown that they're not just relevant to the time they're in now. They're essentially timeless. And Nassim's point is that when you look at things in that way, what you realize is that the shiny and new is shiny and new, but it has very, very different underlying characteristics than the stuff that's been around a long time. And the stuff that's been around a long time is more likely to stick around and have more staying power because, and this is kind of the essential Nassim part of this, because it probed uncertainty in a different way. It was created over time incrementally and has been shown to last and to survive. When we go out and we come up with the new building style, the new subdivision type, and and the latest iteration has been the garage mahal, right? The house with the three-car garage out front, and when you drive by, you you don't actually see the house. You just see the three-car garage, and halfway up the wall, they put the fake rock siding on it, you know, with the vinyl siding on the sides and the back. This is a 1990s, 2000s style of building. When we look at that style of building, it's shiny and new, right? Uh, You go inside, you might have granite countertops, you might have the oak cabinets, whatever it is, the open foyer, right? This is the hot building style, right? This is the building style that's been around for the last 20 years. This is This is what's hot. The problem is, or the question is, really, is this going to last? How well is this going to stick with us? How long is this going to stick with us? How much underlying strength does this approach really have? And when you compare it to other neighborhood styles and other neighborhood types, ones that are more traditional, ones that have been around longer, and say, which one of these is going to be more successful over time? A lot of things start to bubble up to the surface. When you look at some of those old traditional neighborhoods and you see housing types and styles that are, in a sense, universal, that you can find going back literally hundreds of years, that have characteristics that are adaptable, that can be expanded upon. You see all these things about that style of development that is very, very different than the style of development that we build in today. We look at the same thing with commercial properties, the historic way of building a commercial property, especially starting out, was to have a business with the attached residential. The owner could live in there, essentially be able to mind the business in a very cheap and affordable way while having housing costs that were slightly less or were subsidized by the business. As a business became more successful, they could move out to somewhere else and rent out that space. Now they have two different income streams. These models were developed and have been around a long, long time because they are anti-fragile, because they're incredibly strong. The stuff we do today, even though it seems very normal to us and it seems like you know the way things should be done, we need to step back and understand how not only experimental it is, but how little staying power it is actually proven to have. Will the big box store be around 50 years from now? I don't think so. But whether you believe that it will be or won't be, 
you can be more certain that the main street store with the retail down below and the residential above will be around 50 years from now than the big box store will be simply because that main street store has been around for hundreds of years, for centuries. And the big box store has only been with us for a generation or two. Okay. But why is it that everything in nature is, is there absolutely, except for if you're on a boat, the horizon is probably threatening. There's very little in nature that's ugly. And I think that, look at this crap, all right? It's very ugly, all right? So, so there's something about geometry and dimension, you see? We like high dimensionality, we like moldings, we like stuff. So while you walk around New York City, where the same thing mathematically can be mapped to your preferences, living in an environment that is uh, full, of, uh, full of people. High fractalness to the environment and other, and that is your preference, your anti-fragility, your preference for some class of disorder. One of Nassim's heroes is a guy named Benoit Mandelbrot. And Mandelbrot came up with the notion of fractals, fractalness. I'm not a mathematician. I mean, I've, I've had plenty of math. I'm an engineer, so I've had like seven quarters of calculus. But I, I never studied fractal math. I find it fascinating. I'm not going to try to explain it because I think I would just prove my ignorance. Except to say that one of the physical characteristics of fractal systems is that they tend to be both ordered and disordered simultaneously. Oftentimes people point out that fractal systems, when you zoom in and you zoom out, they look the same. And I think that's an oversimplification. They don't look the same, but they have a lot of the same ways in which they're ordered. If you look at the way cities used to be built, they used to be built in a fractal kind of way. We would have a block. That block would start to fill out with buildings. The buildings in the first iteration would have been like often cheap pop-up little buildings, some small experiment to get the place started. And then as that street would grow over time, those buildings would be improved. They would be added onto, they would be torn down and replaced. And things would start to coalesce and come together in a place. When you had enough stuff going on, the center of that would start to take on different characteristics of a town center. The streets would start to take on certain characteristics. When you look at these, what you're watching is an organic process taking place. And the same process that fuels evolution is fueling growth within our cities and within our places. As humans, we are inclined to find this type of development to be attractive to be beautiful, as Nassim says. And when we look at the stuff that we build today, we're less likely to find it to be beautiful because it lacks that fractal nature. It lacks that, we often just attribute it to the attention to detail, but it's more than that. It is the organic evolution of it along with us as a species. When you go in and you build something big and massive all at once, you can get it right you can design it and build it in such a way where you get it right. And I'll, I'll point to a place that I was recently, Carmel, Indiana, where they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get it right and building this beautiful square with the palladium and the urban development. And there are people applauding this. I went there and it just felt incredibly unnatural to me. It felt really, really weird because it hadn't been built organically. It had been built all at once and it felt soulless and lifeless. 
like it wasn't supposed to be there. Now, let me give you another example. Disneyland. Disneyland was essentially built with the same characteristics of construction. We went in and we built it all at once. And Disneyland does not have that same kind of feel as a place like Carmel has. Why? Why? Well, I'm not saying that we can't get it right. I'm not saying that from a top-down perspective, we can't get it right. And the Disney people have certainly been obsessed, 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 obsessed with the fine, fine grain details down to, you know, paint colors. And the degree of detail is absolutely amazing. And Disneyland as a place has because of this obsession, it evolves every year in terms of the things that they're doing, the different ornamentations of the buildings, the different ways they're decorating things, the different paint colors, all, all that stuff evolves continuously over time. So it's not like they froze it in time the way a place like Carmel now feels to me or Carmel feels to me. Here's the point. When we look at the way cities used to be built, they used to be built along with us. And because they used to be built along with us at small increments, slowly over time, in small pieces, we couldn't move huge amounts of ground. We couldn't erect massive buildings in the middle of nowhere. We had to build slowly and incrementally over time. And because of that, that development pattern became beautiful. Even when we step back and look and say, that's not beautiful, aesthetically, there was beauty to it. But even more importantly, culturally, there was beauty to it. Politically, there was beauty to it. Socially, there was beauty to it. All of these things that today we just ignore, our personal health, all these things that we've come to look at as fringe issues to moving cars within a place, all of those things were paramount to the evolution of these organic spaces. All of those things were, in a sense, optimized and balanced within the construction of those places. Now that we go in and we build them very simply, and we try to take out all that complexity, we try to give everybody their own private space, we try to build in very efficient ways, we often don't worry about social interaction or community interaction or or any of that. In fact, all those things t- as humans give us a certain level of discomfort. And so we try to get rid of that discomfort and not require you to do that. That's part of smoothing things out and alleviating the stresses in our system. What we wind up with is places that are not as beautiful. And I'm not defining beautiful just in terms of aesthetics. I'm defining beautiful in a whole variety of physical beauty, aesthetic beauty, social, cultural, political interconnectedness and beauty. When we build in this pattern, we get the advantage of getting things done quickly. And if we're obsessed with GDP growth, we get the advantage of goosing GDP growth. But what we give up is that anti-fragileness of the system. We make the systems not only not anti-fragile, not only not robust and resilient, but we actually make them fragile and fragile on multiple levels, multiple levels that we don't even comprehend and understand. So the idea is 
So not to teach economists to be wise, although we have some friends like uh, Bill Easterly who um, are, uh, of course, improving the field uh, greatly, but don't rely on them. They're not never going to get wise. Uh, so the idea is to build system that can deal with mistakes made by economists. And this is where I think the most important insight comes in terms of how we go forward with this, because I was trained as an engineer. I've got an engineering license. I went back to graduate school and got a planning degree. I am an AICP planner. And as an engineer and as a planner, and when we deal with economic development officials or city administrators or what have you, they confidently express in all these professions that they know what they're doing. We know what we're doing. We know how to build this stuff. We know how to make it happen. And I would agree that there is a great deal of technical expertise contained in all those professions. When you go to the engineering profession, they know how to count cars. They know how to design the roadways. They know how to optimize that part of the system. When you go to planners, planners can do zoning. They can maybe do a community engagement session and do a visioning session and get all that information down into a community plan. Great. Wonderful. Economic development people know how to give out tax subsidies. They know how to attract businesses to the community. You can go through the litany of specialties that we have within cities, whether it's, you know, downtown directors or main street people or housing advocates or parks people, whatever it is, they all have their own area of specialty and expertise. The problem is that none of them grasp the complexity of what's going on in a city. And it's not because any of these people are stupid. These people are brilliant. And in most cases, these people are some of the smartest people in the entire community. And it's not that these people don't care or aren't thoughtful, because they are, they generally do. It's that the level of complexity is beyond anyone's ability to grasp. Let me say that again. The level of complexity in a well-functioning city is beyond anyone's ability to fully grasp. You cannot understand every motivation of every person. You cannot understand how everyone is going to react to things that you do. You cannot understand what will happen when you spend $7 million running sewer and water out to the edge of the community to try to attract development? You can think that you do, and you can have theories about what you do, and sometimes your theories may prove to ultimately come true, but you don't understand what you're doing. Because not only do you not understand what you're doing and how things happen based on what you do, but you don't understand the complex feedback loops that happen within the system. So let me give you the example of running sewer water out to the edge of the town, which is what we're doing right now in my hometown. We're spending $7 million to run sewer and water a mile and a half out to the airport where we hope to get some industrial development. And that's going to create jobs and economic opportunity and all this great stuff. What is that going to do for neighborhood development? What is that going to do for job displacement? Are there going to be jobs created out there that would otherwise been created in other places? Are there going to be people who now move to those areas instead of investing in, in other neighborhoods? Are there going to be people who now don't come through town because the 
crappy, slow development stuff goes a mile and a half further and slows down everything even more. There are infinite number of variables at play here. And we can't even begin to comprehend them all and how they all are going to interact and feedback with each other. We don't know. And because we don't know, what does Nassim Taleb suggest that we do? He says, stop pretending that you're God. Stop pretending that you actually understand all this complexity. And use your brilliance to create systems that are immune to your own errors. Use your intelligence and your intellect to create systems that will thrive even when people make mistakes. We need to create systems that are robust to error. And right now, we have systems at, at the city level that are destroyed by error, that are so vulnerable to mistakes and errors. The brilliance of the traditional city, the brilliance of the pre-automobile city was not only its anti-fragility, its, its anti-fragile characteristics, but it was the fact that it was robust to mistakes that people would make. Now, does that mean people didn't make mistakes? Yeah, they made mistakes all the time, right? Does that mean that cities didn't blow up? No, they, they blew up all the time. But the big cities, the places that had grown a lot, didn't regress. They didn't tend to regress, at least not very easily, right? There was a lot of margin for error. And while we didn't have the tremendous growth rates that we have today, we had a lot more insurance. We had a lot more margin for error. How do we start to build such systems that are robust to the mistakes that we make? Well, Nassim has a suggestion for that. The problem is when you start to impose top-down solution, you end up with uh, avenues that are as ugly as this, you see. You end up with the Houseman style big avenues and Jane Jacobs probably she, be, it's good to be conservative, but nature is not conservative. Okay. Nature is not going nature destroys every day, but nature progresses by, by locally and by tinkering. It doesn't progress by having uh, Alan Greenspan call up nature and say, we're not going to have seasons anymore. All right. <laughs> to smooth out the cycle. It doesn't happen that way. It's, it's an organic thing, but so you have to put things in a condition to organically move. And if you look at pictures, actually buildings, you see how buildings vary through time. Now, Nassim, in that clip, started out by talking about top-down solutions. And he it's funny because when you listen to him, he just throws out names, right? He's Houseman, Jane Jacobs. It's his brain processing things. Those are like mental milestones, right? As he's expressing things. And then he just moves on. Let me unpack that a little bit. Because when he's talking about Hausman, what he's talking about is, uh, you know, an economist, Jerry Hausman, who came up with a method for essentially taking data and using it to make projections. And so what he's referring to there, and he shortly follows that up with Jane Jacobs, who he looks at as like the antithesis of a Hausman approach. What he's saying is that there's two different ways to probe these uncertainties, right? There's the Hausman approach, which is you take all this data and then you project it out and you just go forward with confidence because if you get your model right, you know what you're doing. 
And he would say that that's absolute folly. That's just ridiculousness because you can never have enough data. The data that you're measuring is not going to be right. There's too much complexity and unknowns in the system. And they feed back and interact with each other in very peculiar and, and largely unknowable ways. So stop pretending you can create some type of linear model with one or two variables to explain what's going on or even a hundred variables to explain what's going on. You can't. You can't do it. The Jane Jacobs approach then, and you hear his his mind just, you know, blurt out the word Jane Jacobs, uh, like some kind of crazy Nassim tick, like Jane Jacobs. Jane Jacobs to him is the opposite. It's the opposite. It's It's saying that instead of using some huge regression model and thinking that you're smarter than the system, humble yourself to the system. Look around and see what has worked and adapt that. Tinker with that. Make modest improvements on that. Use that as the basis for going forward into the unknown. When he talks about nature not being conservative, it's funny because conservationalists, conservation, conservativeness, they're all in a sense related. But nature itself is the least conservative thought or philosophy we have, right? Because nature is ultimately, at the end of his day, the most destructive force around. Evolution is a process of destruction and renewal. When you study evolution and evolutionary biology, what you find is that there isn't this nice linear progression. If you take the, the human progression, you, you, you don't have this nice progression from chimpanzee to human, right? You have these huge leaps and these periods of time where kind of cataclysmic things happen and one variant takes over from the other, which fades away. It's adaptation. And so what Nassim says is that you need to respect that this is the way these systems work. They work by destruction. And so if you're going to operate in the realm of city building, don't pretend that you're going to not have destruction. Don't pretend that you're going to smooth out all volatility and be able to project the future and arrive there with a huge amount of certainty. You have to count on destruction. And so have your destruction early and have it often because that will strengthen you. Don't put it off and have it at the end in a cataclysmic way, which is what human nature <laughs> wants to do. Design systems that destroy early. What he talks about is, you know, we need to progress by tinkering. I know a lot of people in the urban planning profession and a lot of people who are deeply intellectual, who talk about cities and talk about building and growth and development and, and all this stuff. And they look with a certain amount of scorn on the tactical urbanism movement. Sometimes tactical urbanism is called guerrilla urbanism. It's the idea that we go out and do little projects. I had one person who is a very nice man, but can be a little bit elitist at times, say to me a few years ago, you know, you're not into that guerrilla urbanism stuff, are you? You're going to, not going to put in pallet benches out, are you? Yeah, I am. I'm completely into that. I think not only am I into that, but I think that that is the way we have to move forward today. We have created a world in which no one has ever lived in before. We took a variant on a theme that people have lived in for thousands of years. And what we did is we threw it away and we did something completely different. 
And in two and a half generations, we've completely here in North America transformed an entire continent around new theories, new ideas, new ways of doing things that are untested by time. Now we're finding it doesn't work. We have to find a way to adapt to that and come up with something that does work. If you talk to a lot of the intellectuals today and a lot of people dealing with this, they'll say, well, we just need a ton more money to try different new things on grand scales. I think the most brilliant people working in this today are the people working in the tactical urbanism field because they're acknowledging right off the bat that we don't know what's going to work. We don't know what's going to fix this place. We have some ideas. We've learned some things from the past. We've looked at what historically worked and what was anti-fragile. But we can't just superimpose that on this framework today, right? This framework is much, much different. What we have to do is learn from that stuff from the past and tinker today. We need to be tinkering all over the place to try to figure out what works and to try to figure out what the best investments are and what are the things that are going to make our cities anti-fragile. We need to be out there tinkering. We need to be trying lots and lots of stuff. You know, cities should not be doing one big project a year. They should be doing a hundred little projects every year and building on them. We wrote a report here called Neighborhoods First for my own hometown. And instead of the $7 million to run the sewer and water out to the edge of town, we proposed eight projects within one kind of distressed neighborhood, a total cost of a little over $16,000. Just small tinkering things that were meant to address burning issues that we saw present in the neighborhood. Places where people were struggling. We saw people walking through certain plays and you get the desire path, the desire path where people are walking and they've worn down the grass, but there's no sidewalk. There's no way through. Those are like obvious places to improve, right? We already, we're already getting the signal and the feedback that this place's needs should be fixed. Let's just go and do that. There were streets where we saw people walking, but when we would walk them, the shade trees had died out in the 80s with Dutch elm disease and had never been replaced. Why don't we just replace those, right? 75 bucks a tree. Let's just get it started. A decade from now, it'll be shade along that corridor. We know that that works. We know that historic neighborhoods are lined with shade trees. Why not just put them in now? There are all kinds of these little tinkering things we can do. And and the cool thing about tactical urbanism and tinkering is that You can learn from your mistakes quickly, and you can learn from your mistakes affordably. These are systems designed to be anti-fragile. These are systems designed to create anti-fragile outcomes. Because when we do something and it works, and it's small scale, we can scale it up. When we do something small scale and it doesn't work, we can abandon it or, or try it in a different way somewhere else. These are the philosophies of a humble people, but a confident people. A people that is humble in the sense that we're not trying to fool ourselves that we know all the answers, but confident that if we are disciplined about how we approach things, we can improve our places and find more answers than anybody else is going to find. So I think that if you look at downtown Beirut, the areas, the old neighborhoods, we're not talking like Dubai, it was a bunch of tents. We're talking about a city that's uh, 5,000 years old, right? continuously inhabited, or take Damascus, 8,000 years old, continuously inhabited. So we have streets that have been around 8,000 years. Uh, Beirut has a few earthquakes, but it was rebuilt really along, you know, repatched up along what they had before. So if you look at these places, I would say that, that, that these cities are not doing something wrong, okay, because of the Lindy effect. So I would say, I would 
commit uh, some kind of naturalistic fallacy by mixing my own aesthetics with that Lindy rule by saying what people have liked the longest is likely to make me happy for the longest. You see, you can be happy looking at this ugly, this ugly building over there might have been pretty attractive for someone for about two hours when it was built, right? But you, you want something more, you see, you see the idea. So preservationists understand that very well, but they don't have that framework. Nassim is actually from Lebanon. And so he, he talks about Beirut. He talks about the guys traveled all over. He talks about these places with a familiarity and an intimacy that, that I certainly don't have. But I can look at my own hometown here and I can see that the stuff that was built a hundred years ago was pretty darn nice. As the market has experienced some volatility, it's tended not to rise as quickly as other areas. But when we've had downturns and when we've had difficult times, it's tended not to lose as much either. And this is in a city where we've turned our backs on it. We've said, that is an old way of doing things. We're going to do things differently. We're going to spend your money basically undermining your neighborhoods. And still, they have proven to be strong and in many ways anti-fragile. And I'll give you a, a very poignant example. My friend Joe Minicosi pointed out he did some analysis on our city. Joe does brilliant, brilliant work. We're going to have him on a podcast here real soon. Joe does brilliant work. And he pointed out to me that our mall that was built in the mid 1980s. So I, I was in junior high when this was built. This was like the cool hangout spot, right? Like the great place everybody would go to. That is, has the same area roughly as the nine blocks of our core downtown. But our core downtown produces two and a half times the amount of tax revenue every year than that new mall. And if you've ever been to my hometown of Brainerd, Minnesota, the downtown is not a very spectacular place. In fact, I have not gone to the downtown myself in, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm trying to think of when the last time I went there. Certainly not to go retail shopping. I've, it's been a long time. It's not a very nice place. Yet, anti-fragile in the sense that it is retaining its value and even in a dilapidated, neglected, underutilized kind of way, still paying enormous feedback and enormous amount of wealth to the community every year, despite the little bit of expense that it is compared to the mall. This all reinforces Nassim's point, which is that time will optimize organic systems. And while that optimization process is messy and difficult, time will optimize those systems in a way that is beneficial for humanity. Whether you think that aesthetics are important, economic opportunity is important, whether you think that community fellowship is important, social interaction, politics, whatever it is that you find to be the most important thing, you won't have an Anasim Taleb vision of the world that all the time, maximum, you know, this is what it's going to be. But what you will have is a system of stresses and balances internally that will over time optimize the system. An optimized system is better than a fast-growing system. What we have done post-World War II, and a lot of this is in, you know, reaction to the Great Depression, 
embrace of the automobile because of cheap fuel. I mean, you could name all the complex reasons why we went on this pattern. But what we did post-World War II, in my kind of Talebian view, is we tried to get rid of the volatility every place we could find it. We tried to suppress the stress of life. And by using our wealth to suppress the stress of life, not only have we made lives that are incredibly stressful, that's the paradox of this whole thing. Americans are not generally happy people. Not only have we made lives that tend to be very stressful, but we've made our places really fragile in the process. We've actually invited painful, painful volatility that we sought to get rid of. My biggest fear, my biggest fear here in the year 2015 and and looking at the transition America is going through and all the struggles that we have that we face is that we are going to continue on this path and use ever larger sledgehammers, right? Ever larger in, in terms of like that the Fed is using now and ever larger bazooka to try to slay the volatility monster every time it raises its head. We don't need to get rid of volatility. What we need to do is introduce it back into the system in a way that is as painless as possible. Think of it in terms of an earthquake. If we could, would we suppress all the category six earthquakes? Yeah, I'm sure we would. We would try to not have those earthquakes happen. But ultimately, an earthquake is just a letting out of stress. It's tectonic plates rubbing up against each other, having stress, and the earthquake is a, is a release of that stress. If we could somehow freeze that and make that not happen, we could put off earthquakes a long time. But when they happened, they would not be Category 6. They would be Category 9. What we want is maybe not a bunch of Category 6 earthquakes, although we might have to tolerate one every now and then. What we want is a bunch of Category 2 and 3 earthquakes. In fact, we could live with daily Category 2 and 3 earthquakes. What our system of city building has tried to do, and it's really based on our system of economics, the whole post-war Keynesian top-down centralized economy that we have, the whole idea is that we can get rid of earthquakes. As Nassim says, we can have Alan Greenspan call up and cancel the seasons and pretend they don't exist. All that does is set us up for the Category 9 earthquake. What we need to do is we need to have a strategy for injecting the, you know, level one, level two, level three earthquakes back into the system on a regular basis so that our systems start to become stronger. And that stress that has built up is let out in a more manageable way than in one just huge cataclysmic event. This gets us to the money quote of this whole thing, which I started and ended last podcast with. I'm going to do the same here because most people who love cities love Paris. And there's a reason why we love Paris, right? Because it captures all the complexity of great space that we love. You can fall in love in Paris. You can get lost in love in Paris 
Paris is one of the most beautiful cities ever created. And I love this quote because it captures the connection between great places and places we love and the economic values that we claim to be seeking and be after. The real estate in Paris, when I was writing Antifragile, and I was completely ignorant of these things, and I wondered where was the expensive real estate. <laughs> and the expensive real estate turned out to be in neighborhoods that were villagey in looking, you see, and, and, then, and then where you effectively had some kind of uh, life, all right, and you can look at it in terms of dimensionality, namely the fifth six in Paris and uh, uh, the Marais, for example, and all these areas that were completely spared by modernity, you see. So it tells you that we were on a process before modernity of building neighborhoods in a certain way. I love his description, villagey. The guy is not a planner. He doesn't speak in the terms that we do. You know, if you go talk to the average planner, they'll say mixed use, walkable, human scaled, dense, you know, whatever the terms are. I, I like his term better, villagey. And when we build places that are villagey, we are by definition building places that are complex. We cannot engineer complexity. We cannot build complexity from visioning sessions with a set of plans. We can't build that. It has to grow. And so if there's one main takeaway from all of this Nassim Taleb, it's that we have to allow our places to grow slowly, incrementally over a broad base, because at the end of the day, they are organic natural systems. And if we want them to be successful, we have to nurture them in that way. Hey, thanks everybody for listening today. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, we're going to be back real soon with more. Take care and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I have feared. Yeah, I know. They're a lot worse. Now, wait a second. Now, we haven't even seen the part no, where no, 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 Don't let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent 
uh, in what you're doing here. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. 